Okay, welcome everybody to, or all two of you for now, <laughs> to uh, Spiritual Psychotherapy, Episode 2. Um, this is something I'm, you know, really looking forward to giving because it, it hits very close to home. And uh, there's a lot of stories here that I find really have resonated with me um, and carry me through my day. So, so please let me know how they land on you and uh, how you feel uh, when you hear these stories. And I would love to hear your feedback, of course, throughout the class. You know, it's not something that I want to just be monologuing, of course. So the first one is about, uh, it's a Zen story about a master named Hakuin. So it goes as follows. Master Hakuin and often referred to, um, oh, sorry. So the, that's the name of the story is, is that so? So let's see where that comes up. The Zen master lived in a town in Japan and was held in high regard by many people for his teachings. Then one day, a girl in the village became pregnant. Her parents were not very happy and wanted to know who the father was. The daughter indicated that Hakuin was the father. The parents went to the Zen master to let him know, and he replied, is that so? Subsequently, he lost his reputation as it spread throughout the town. This did not trouble him. That's how almost enlightened he was. He didn't allow it to really bother him uh, that he you know, was accused of something he didn't even do, of impregnating this young woman. When the child was born, the parents brought the child to Hakuin and told him to look after him. The Zen master took loving care of the child, and a year later, the mother of the child could not take it any longer and told the truth to her parents. The parents went to Hakuin and confessed that he was not the father. Is that so? Is how he responded and handed the baby over to them. So what's the, what's the point of this story? I think the way it lands for me is it something that shows me, you know, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what kind of chaos is, is coming from outside, you're able to be in the present moment at a certain point in time. Like when you, when you get to this level and you're able to be so present, it doesn't matter what's happening outside. It doesn't matter what people are accusing you of. And you don't have to actually do exactly as he's doing. But I think the message is, Look at what it's like for a person who is so at peace that his peace does not depend on reputation or accusations or anything like that. He's able to just totally be present with what is, with a curiosity in a way. And, and that allows him to just simply respond, is that so? When somebody accuses him and then, you know, recants that accusation. I think it's a pretty amazing thing. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about Eastern philosophy on the one hand, and then we're talking about Kabbalah on the other hand. So if I asked you, Mickey, what, what would you say is a theme of Kabbalah in general? You think about what is Kabbalah? How would you say that it tells the story of the universe? I know it's a big, it's a big question to ask. I'll just go for it. Yeah, please, man. Yeah, why not? Uh, I think that uh, it's almost like a romance. I love it. That's exactly what I wrote down here. I said Kabbalah tells a love story. Good. What do you mean by that? Between the creator and his creations. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And the goal is to achieve, uh, I think, a deep-rooted relationship with each other that's so nice and i think that's exactly right i think even just the way that they describe the the sefirot being in a relationship with each other it shows you like there's something relational going on here so even though it might be true that at the end of the day there is oneness and there is nothingness yesh me'ayin something from nothing the original thing being nothing even though that's the case it's still the case that we can experience the world from this dualistic perspective, which allows us to be in relationship. And when you have a relationship, you have something that's almost worth not merging yet. That's the feeling I think that Judaism is trying to give us and that Kabbalah is trying to give us. So that's Kabbalah, Buddhism and the Eastern stuff tells a story of simplicity and nothingness and tries to go straight for the oneness in a way. 
in all moments. And I don't think either one is right or wrong. I think there are different perspectives to have. And different times in our lives, I think we're going to lean on one versus the other. And we're going to be able to resonate more with one versus the other. So I think that's uh, that's just something to, to point out is that Kabbalah is one way and Buddhism is another way. They have so many similarities, but it's the way that they tell the story that's different. So can you say about reality, is reality a comedy or is reality a drama? Well, the answer is it's both. It's just a matter of how you tell the story. So I think that's what's going on here. And I was telling you before, I read a couple of books this week. I listened to on Audible. Uh, one of them is called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I highly recommend that one. And also Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, just for anybody looking to really center themselves and gather themselves in the moment and, and kind of uh, reboot that meditative process. It really helped me do that this week. So now before we get into the Kabbalistic stuff, I just want to wet your palate a little bit more with some of the Eastern stuff, and then we can get into it. Um, so the first thing is a quote from Lao Tzu. He says, when the great Tao was lost, there came ideas of humanity and justice. When knowledge and cleverness arrived, there came great deceptions. When familial relations went out of harmony, there came ideas of good parents and loyal children. When the nation fell into disorder and misrule, there came ideas of loyal ministers. So what does he mean by this? He's saying when, when we as human beings kind of forgot the, the Taoist way, which is just the flow, almost like Adam and Hava, Adam and Eve, before eating from Eta Da. That's exactly what it is. And then once we started developing these ideas of humanity, justice, cleverness, that's when things started going awry. That's when we started having problems. That's when we started identifying as separate from the universe, separate from God. And we started developing our own egos. So he's going back way back in time to an interesting point. Um, and, you know, without all these ideas, you wouldn't have deception unless you had knowledge and cleverness. You wouldn't have, uh, you know, issues of familial piety if you didn't have ideas about how loyalty should go on within families. Not to say that those are inherently bad, but just to say that the very fact that they evolved and are needed in the first place indicates that there was something already wrong in a way with the human condition and already an alienation from source. Um, and Kabbalah would say that that's true. And that the shattering of the vessels in the very beginning of, of time represents that primordial catastrophe. And now it's our job as part of this love story to bring them all back, to bring back all those sparks to their divine source. Uh, the next quote also from Lao Tzu. Even the best will in the world, when forced, achieves nothing. The best righteousness, when forced, achieves nothing. The best good form, when forced, does not come out right. And so, as ever, mere elbow grease is used to enforce law. So it's saying when you're trying, when you're forcing something, it's never going to really achieve that thing that you're looking for. So if you're trying to force your workers to be productive or forcing your wife to love you or forcing any of this stuff, it's not going to be genuine. It's not going to be real. And, you know, trying to use elbow grease is just not going to cut it. It's not going to lead to a genuine life. And it's not going to lead even to law and order. It's, you know, right now in society, look at it. We have all these laws and we want to have order, but we have a lot of disorder and a lot of crime and a lot of things that are not going right. And I think a lot of that is out of the forcing that's happened in the past. Yeah, I have something great that I relate to. Uh, I play the piano. Uh, and, you know, I'm okay, but I noticed that the more I, and I play the same song over, not many pieces. I found that the, the more I tried to play it right. Hey, Biruchim Abayim. Fadalu. Good to see you. Are you, are you looking for, Morris, yeah, Morris, I think, is either upstairs or downstairs. Is it downstairs? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's upstairs. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Mick. That's all right. So I was <laughs> saying that the more I try to play the song right, 
mm. the harder it was. Mm. Because something that I was thinking is that harmony doesn't come through force. Wow. Harmony just happens. Exactly. And you have to let it occur. You have to let it. And the more we try to force things, the more it totally does not allow us to, like, or lead just wrote here, like to go dance. with the flow. Like Don't fight dance. against the current. Exactly. It's like a dance. hundred percent. That's exactly right. And, and I think life becomes so much more beautiful when you trust it, when you trust the universe. And even though there's so many times in our lives where we're like, I don't understand, you know, where, where am I going? What's, you know, Hashem, why can't you make it more clear for me uh, where my path is headed? And then you start to realize like, why am I so future oriented? Why am I worried about the next moment? exactly and then when you start to trust and you start to embrace this moment you're able to lean back into the letting it happen and like Orlid said going with the flow of things that's a really beautiful analogy is is playing the piano or you know they, they, they tell a story of somebody that's trying to play and as they're growing up they get hit in the finger every time they play the wrong note quote unquote and now they they don't even want to play the piano anymore they have ptsd and they're not going to play anything that sounds beautiful because they're too afraid to make a mistake. There's no emotion, right? It's more exactly. A hundred percent. So I think the key is allow yourself that freedom to make mistakes and to be in the moment. And you start to realize there really is no such thing as a definitive mistake because it's only called a mistake based on this limited perspective that you have. But the more you allow yourself to go with the flow, the more you realize these are not necessarily mistakes. So I think that's a beautiful way of looking at it. Um, this one is from Chuangzu. Um, he says, once upon a time, oh, sorry, uh, next one. We did that one last week. Uh, there was Puliang, I, uh, who had the genius of a sage, but not the Tao. I have the Tao, but not the genius. All right, so she's taught, this is a woman who is a Taoist, and she feels like she has this Taoist tendency, and She's talking about another guy who is a genius. I wished to teach him so that he might really become a sage. To teach the Tao of a sage to a man who has the genius seems to be an easy matter. All right. So she's like, all right, my, it might be pretty easy if this guy is really as smart as, as he is reportedly, then maybe it'll be pretty simple to teach him about the Tao, which is so intuitive. But no, I kept on telling him. After three days, he began to be able to disregard all worldly matters. So she was such a good teacher that she was able to teach him how to meditate in a way where he was able to disregard things like anxieties about status or gain and loss. That's the first three days. Just disregarding the drama of everyday life. Oh, Baruch Abba. Thank you so much for coming. Um, Hopefully we'll we'll start to fill in a little a few more people. Maybe they're late. Who knows? But uh, of course, you're more than welcome to participate. So we're we're just to recap briefly. Uh, we're talking about certain Eastern ideas, comparing them with Kabbalah. Kabbalah is more of a love story we mentioned, and this Eastern stuff is trying to go straight for the oneness, straight for that experience of everything is connected as opposed to the Kabbalah, which is maintaining itself in a dualistic place, in a place where there's still two, and there's still relationship. So right now we're quoting a story from uh, Chuangzu, talking about a woman who is a sage, and she's trying to teach a, a certain man about what is this thing called the Tao. Uh, so the first three days she trains him, and he's able to disregard all of his dramas of his life. After having disregarded all worldly matters, I kept on telling him, after seven days, he began to be able to disregard all external things as being separate entities. So, that, so the first stage was disconnecting from the dramas of his life. So if you ever go on a silent retreat or something, you can keep this in mind. It'll probably take you around that time to kind of disregard a lot of the daily matters that you were going through. And then after about maybe three days, you'll start to settle into the next phase, which is being able to stop seeing separate entities as separate and you start feeling more connected 
to the world around you. After his having disregarded all external things, I kept on telling him. After nine days, he began to be able to disregard his own existence as an ego. Right. So after nine days, only that's this guy was a genius. So maybe take it with a grain of salt. But for him, that's all it took so far was just nine days for him to be able to disregard his separateness. Having disregarded his own existence, he was enlightened. Right. So that's all it took for him to be able to realize there is no separate me. And just to sit with that and come back to that thought over and over again. For this guy, all it took was that much time. So there's the famous saying, Alan Watts likes to quote. He says, when it comes to what we're trying to teach, it could, it could take you three seconds. It could take you 30 years. I mean that. So there's something to this that it could happen suddenly for some people. And it could happen a little bit more slowly for other people. It could happen extremely slowly for other people. And it's all fine, but just know that it's an intuitive experience to have. This book that I was quoting earlier from uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, there are moments of enlightenment, he says, that we have. It's not necessarily a state that you enter and now don't leave the rest of your life. But there are moments that we have that are just full-on enlightenment, just from sitting and meditating, just from praying to Hashem. You could have moments where you're fully engaged in this experience of enlightenment. Having become, become enlightened, he was then able to gain the vision of the one. Having the vision of the one, he was then able to transcend the distinction of past and present. Right, So time immediately becomes in play now. So I love how she's going stepwise almost. So disregard the daily dramas of your life. Disregard the idea of everything being separate, including yourself, and then start seeing yourself connected with everything and start seeing everything as one. And once you really sit with that and you're able to transcend that dualism or the separateness of everything, you start realizing time itself is something that is not so concrete. And it's something that's really much more just about this moment, implying all other moments. The past and the future spring forth from this moment at all times, in all moments. Um, having transcended the distinction of past and present, he was then able to enter the realm where life and death are no more. Ah, so now here he is. Once you transcend that level of oneness, which is, you know, it's not even to be transcended. Hey, Baruch Abba. Good to see you, Sam. Uh, so once you're able to move past this idea of, of separateness and get to that oneness and then get past time, now as well, life and death are no longer an issue. So I've had experiences meditating where I realized my deepest fears or my deepest fear is the fear of death. And it forces you to realize that from that fear, all other fears kind of come by. Baruch Abba, Dr. Nasser, so good to see you. Um, so we're just in the middle of uh, of this source right here, if you want to take a look. Um, Sorry, I'm so, late. Thank you. Oh, don't worry about it. Thank you for coming. Better late than never. Um, so same goes for you, Sam. <laughs> so like we're saying, time is an illusion anyway. We were just talking about uh, transcending the distinction of past and present. How, and you couldn't have been more timely. So like we're saying from this moment, you wouldn't know what any other moment was unless there was this moment. So this moment implies the whole Big Bang up until now. So in this moment is all of that history till now. And if you could really be present with that experience in a way, you can start seeing the world that way. So having transcended the distinction of past and present, he was then able to enter the realm where life and death are no more. And now here's the beauty is that once you start cycling this way within time, no longer is life and death such an issue for you because you see past it. And that's when people start talking about reincarnation. I think the whole idea of reincarnation comes from this. 
And there have been, you know, I know uh, Ram Das talking about his experiences uh, meditating on probably LSD, you know, when he was uh, starting off before he started really uh, to get serious about his meditation and seeing like a flipping of images that he talks about. And you start seeing like a plant withering into the ground. And then you start seeing an animal and, he, and it's almost like you experienced being that. And the whole flipping of images almost feels like a reincarnation. And it's happening in this moment. And it's happening where you realize past and present life and death is an illusion. It's something that continues to happen and rehappen and happen again. And that's just what existence does. Existence just brings about big, big, big bang, big crunch, big bang, big crunch. It just keeps on doing this. Um, the next thing. Then to him, the destruction of life did not mean death. Thank you so much. Nor the prolongation of life in addition to the duration of his existence. So now... Once you get to that place, and this is what really meditation is trying to teach you, is once you overcome that very primal fear of death, you're able to be so present in this moment, and you're, ab you're able to be so identified with big mind, in a way, as they call it, that it doesn't. you don't have this fear of destruction of your life or the need for prolongation of your life in this moment. That doesn't mean you're not going to eat and drink. It doesn't mean you don't have to do all those things. It just means that you're able to feel into that experience after having overcome that primal emotion. He would follow anything. He would receive anything. To him, everything was in destruction. Everything was in construction. This is called tranquility in disturbance. Tranquility in disturbance means perfection. And that's how the quote ends. Isn't that such a profound quote? It's, it's literally a sage who brings you from this moment of taking a, a, a smart person who is, I mean, a smart person who is not even educated at all about meditation and Taoism, taking him through all these stages until he gets to a place where, and you know, it, it might be literal, it might not even be literal, but it's almost like a template. For these are the stages that you might encounter on your personal journey of enlightenment. And the irony is that it's you're already enlightened on some level, and it's already now that you have this enlightenment. But as you're developing and growing, because like we said, it's a paradox. So on the one hand, you're already enlightened. On the other hand, you're growing and furthering yourself on this path. So this is the paradox. This is the place to realize like, wow, you know, I could get to this place where tranquility and disturbance means perfection. It's kind of what I was talking to you about. You know, like I have this deep fear while I'm in the psych unit and there's, it's a very hot unit, as they say right now, there's people who are, you know, squirting their ointment into the nursing station or they're like jumping up and spitting at staff. And it scares me, you know, and I get scared, just this primal fear of being harmed. But then I come back to my breath. And I feel like I could almost find some of this tranquility and disturbance. And I'm not quite there yet, but it's, it's teaching me how to let go. It's teaching me how to be in this perfection mindset where everything is in destruction. Everything is in construction. Everything is so transient where in all moments you have what's called beginner's mind. In all moments, in this moment right now. It's almost like this is the very first moment of creation right now. And then again, and then again. And every previous moment is being destroyed and every new moment is being created. And that's really what's true. You know, they always tell kids like, how do you know that your brain wasn't just implanted just now with all the memories that you have? Well, you don't know that's of course. I don't think it was the aliens doing it. But I think on a very true level, intuitively, we might have a memory of the previous moment and say, okay, yeah, it's probably. But in reality, all you ever know is this moment. And it's, it is standalone in every moment. And that's what it means to have beginner's mind. It means to begin again in any given moment. We'll get to the Kabbalah very soon in one second. Um, here's another account of this kind of thing. At the end of seven years, there was another change. I let my mind reflect on what it would. So now this is a person talking about their own experience of the unfolding of enlightenment. I let my mind reflect on what it would 
but it no longer occupied itself with right and wrong. I let my lips utter whatsoever they pleased, but they no longer spoke of profit and loss. At the end of nine years, my mind gave free rein to its reflections, my mouth free passage to its speech, right? So it's everything naturally happening. Stop trying to control what you say and what you think. And just allow those thoughts and those words to flow. Because the less you identify with an ego, the less afraid you are to allow any thought to come and pass through your mind. Of right and wrong, profit and loss, I had no knowledge, either as touching myself or others. Internal and external were blended into unity. All right, so that's such an interesting thing. At a certain point, and this is so perfectly put, internal and external are blended into unity. So right now, are you consciously beating your heart? Are you consciously secreting melatonin from your pineal gland? Am I consciously going like this? The same way I don't know how I beat my heart, I also don't know how I move my hand. And once you really get into that, you also don't know how you shine the sun. You don't know how you make this table be here. It's really the same thing from one perspective. The same way you beat your heart is also the same way that you generate this entire field of experience. Does that make sense? It's all involuntary, including the words I'm speaking right now. I don't know how I'm doing this. I can't explain it to you. It's just happening the same way that noise is just happening. So the, the sun is happening, shining. The horn is happening, you know, honking. The water is happening, flowing. And, and that's just the way it is. And, and I just happen to be speaking. And I'm, I'm the one that's watching all of it and internal and external start to be blended into unity. That's the perspective of the oneness of it all. After that, there was no distinction between eye and ear, ear and nose, nose and mouth. All were the same. My mind was frozen, my body in dissolution, my flesh and bones all melted together. I was wholly unconscious of what my body was resting on or what was under my feet. I was born this way and that on the wind, like dry chaff or leaves falling from a tree. In fact, I knew not whether the wind was riding on me or I on the wind. I really love that because it's poetically, in a way, showing you that feeling. They say, and what is enlightenment like? And the answer that was given by this guru is, it's a lot like everyday waking consciousness, except two inches off the ground. All right, so... Uh, we'll, we'll pause here with this stuff and we'll move into the Kabbalah. But right before we do that, I'll give a quick, I'll give a quick uh, analogy from this book, Ender's Game. Anybody ever read Ender's Game? It's one of my favorite books ever in my whole life from a child. Amazing. Uh, it's really, it's one, it's up yeah, there for me too. Do you, you know, I remember getting to the end of that book and there's only like a few pages left. And I'm like, how is he going to fight the whole war with the buggers if there's only this many pages left? And then, of course, you know, spoiler alert, this incredible thing. And what he thought was just the practice for beating the buggers was actually the, the war against the Formics. And he beats them and he already had beaten them. So I, it, to me, this is almost like an amazing analogy to the mystical experience, because a lot of the time in our lives, we have this illusion that the next moment is going to be the most important moment. We have this illusion that we're constantly preparing for the next thing. But let's say I get up to pray Amidah with Hashem. If my mindset is constantly Hashem, the next moment is the most important one, or the next moment is the most important one, I'm never actually sitting there with Hashem. Exactly. Exactly. So if I'm sitting here in this class and I'm constantly thinking about what am I going to say in the next source, or what's going to be the next thing out of my mind, it doesn't feel like it's naturally flowing. It feels forced. It represents a lack of mindfulness. Exactly. You're not focused on the present moment. Exactly. And you're, you're always worrying about, and it's almost like pathological, like society trains us to run on this hamster wheel. But the beauty of these mystical traditions is that it allows you to escape that. And it says, Hashem is like, Hashem just wants me to be present. 
that's all that it is. So that's my my thoughts on Ender's Game. I just had that kind of flashbulb moment. I thought that was so cool. Um, I have a couple other thoughts here. One of them is pretty uplifting. You know, we think of our life story and we like to put it down. And we want, some people say, oh, annihilation of the ego. We're going to talk about that in Kabbalistic terms uh, eventually. But you can also realize that your life is like one note in this grand symphony of the world, right? Like imagine the whole universe is one giant symphony and your life was one note. And that entire song would be different if that one note was different because it all affects each other. So unless your life occurred and unfolded, the entirety of the universe would be different. So that's what we mean when we see internal and external as connected is that you literally imply the rest of the universe. That I only know myself in the context of everything else, in space and in time, right? We spoke about that. I am actually Big Bang till 1995 till now. And I am actually entire universe to Earth, to New York, to here where I am right now. It's all connected. Um, so we'll leave the rest of that stuff for now. And finally, we'll, we'll go into... Uh, some of the other sources. So, Rabbi Byron, but actually, before we do that, anybody have any questions or comments before we move on? Feel free if anybody does. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, we'll talk about Rabbi Byron Sherwin. Um, so, right now, we're up to uh, the, the chapter continuing from last year, where he tries to show you that within religious life itself, these Kabbalistic ideas shine through. And they're able to actually have something in them that is breathing into your daily normal mystical life within the mitzvot. Um, so I wrote here, Kabbalah does not need to be an absolute truth, but rather like a channel to tune into and appreciate as a means of connecting with the ground of being. So Kabbalah is a specific perspective to have while you're performing the mitzvot that allows you just to vibe in a certain way with this experience that you're having with Hashem. And by the way, it's quite an epic way of living. You know, if you only had, you know, Buddhism and you didn't have Torah and you didn't have Kabbalah, you wouldn't have this specific, unique story of a love story that's happening between the Sefirot and between God and B'nai Israel seeking out this relationship. You wouldn't have it quite that way. Um, and life, I think, could get somewhat boring without this cosmic significance. And I think that's a reason why so many people sought out Kabbalah, is because they felt that Judaism on its own is great, but I need more of this understanding of the cosmic significance of everything while I'm doing it. So I think it requires a certain amount of humility to understand that despite the relative truth of this teaching, there's still tremendous value in it. And it can be elevated to the degree of absolute truth if it brings you there. So that's the thing. The word relative truth means nothing. And the word absolute truth means nothing. It's all a matter of what is the experience that you have with it. So if your meditation on these Kabbalistic ideas brings you towards a mystical connection with everything, it becomes an absolute truth. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't know if I agree so much. Yeah, what do you think? I would love to hear um, I think that because it sounds like what you're saying is you do the, the dance and if it takes you there then it is the truth um, but I think that inherently by doing the dance you're, there's also value in it I agree and I, th I hate to say it but I think this is part of the paradox that even even <laughs> without you knowing it even without you knowing it is part of the enlightenment Right. So like I was just listening to that that other book I was talking about, and he was saying, if you're just sitting in meditation, even if you're not feeling great, even if you don't think, oh, I'm, not, I'm in line so, so much right now, just sitting in this posture and being with the breath already is enlightenment, even if you don't know it. So, you know, you know, in the movie uh, Interstellar, you ever see that movie? Unbelievable movie. And they show you at one point, there's like the flickering of the lights. Uh, at a certain point, or, and like uh, one of the books gets moved, and he doesn't know what's going on. And okay, fine, it was just some random thing at that point in his life. But then once the whole movie unfolds and this whole cosmic thing happens, it's almost like 
he went back in time and gave those moments significance. And in fact, he was at that cosmic level, even when he didn't know it himself. So the mystical experience tells you, wow, I didn't even realize, but all along this, this, you know, uh, crooked path of my life, this broken road, there really was significance that I didn't see. And that's that famous poem, Footprints in the Sand. You could look it up if you like, but it's talking about a person who was walking in the sand uh, with God. And he sees two footprints, two sets of footprints all along the path. And then during the most difficult times in his life, he sees only one set of footprints. He looks at God. He says, how could you do this to me, God? How could you leave me in the, you never heard this poem? How could you leave me in the most, you know, uh, vulnerable points of my life? And God looks at him and he says, my child, it was in those moments that were the most difficult moments for you that I carried you on my shoulders. And that's why you only see one set of footprints. And, and, you know, some people get a little bit of an aversion to this. They say, no, I, you know, they push away the idea of God being the savior, Deus ex machina, God from the machine, like they have in literature. People don't like that. Fine, if that doesn't appeal to some people, I think it's the equivalent of saying, when you have a mystical experience and you realize everything leading you up to that mystical experience was perfect. That's what people will tell you. And it lends significance to literally every moment leading up to that and every moment in the future because it was so perfect in that moment that you understood everything. And as far out as you got and as meaningless as things got, they became infinitely meaningful just from that moment. And I, I think that's something, that's why I say this thing about relative truth and absolute truth is because you might not know it in the moment. You might think, oh, it's only relative right now. But really, there will come a time where you realize what was actually absolute all along. That makes sense? Yeah. I'm glad that's such a good point you made. Um, so now we'll talk about some of the different models that, that are, exist within Kabbalah. So religious life in Kabbalah. We have the normal mysticism, which is just everyday keeping of the mitzvot. You have mystical intimacy is another school, addressing God's needs, drawing down divine grace, and prophetic Kabbalah. So those are kind of the five schools that he mentions throughout the book. And we're going to hit upon all these different schools as we talk about these throughout the rest of this class and the rest of these weeks, and how they each try to bring Kabbalah into the picture of just a normal religious life of a Jew. So Hasidut does a great job. It combines a lot of these different models, and they all aim at some type of direct experience of the divine that engenders a transformation in the spiritual life of the mystic. That is the goal of these types of uh, Kabbalah, specifically in Hasidut as well, is that it's trying to spur a certain transformation in your life. And the mitzvot and the cultivation of the midot are central to all of these different schools. So let's start with normal mysticism. Just from the stam traditions that we have, we know, it teaches us even without the temple, God remains fully accessible. That's a very mystical concept. The idea that Hashem is available to me in all moments. That's Rabbi Fa'ur's horizontal society. Exactly. I don't need somebody else. I don't need a rabbi or a shaman or anybody to connect me to God. I am uh, God accessible, even without the, the, the Beit HaMikdash. And that's why the Torah was given in the desert to tell you, even when you're in the diaspora, even when you're in Galut, the Torah still applies and your relationship with Hashem still applies. Still, still applies. It doesn't depend on any piece of land or any time. It always is. Um, they, of course, we have the idea of the importance of Kavanah within standard observance. Kavanah itself is such an unbelievable thing. You could elevate and personalize any mitzvah, I mean, any mitzvah that you have, any particular uh, piece of writing that you interact with, any time you're praying in tefillah, just by having kavanah, it becomes a, an intimate relationship with God. And I don't think that's something to be overlooked. Hasidut embellished on this model and preached an emphasis on God's accessibility to each average individual. So it's embellishing on that. It's saying that's true. And then some 
through normal rather than paranormal experiences, in addition to the ideas of divikut and paranormal experiences of many of these Hasidic masters. So they do, you know, kind of uh, have some, yeah, some of that folklore, like you're saying. Um, but at the same time, the most important thing for, for Hasidim is divikut. That in whatever you're doing, yes, kavana is, is important, but even more than kavana is clinging to God. It's an absolute need of this divine closeness. It's like a wife who is absolutely needing to be with her husband, not in a codependent way, <laughs> more of like, uh, you know, I, I love you so much, I can't bear to be away from you right now. Yeah. I see it like, because um, you said not, not only Kavanaugh, but I think that it really underlying is Kavanaugh. Absolutely. It's the constant awareness and it's the constant uh, feeling and presence with Hashem. That's what matters. Absolutely. Mike, where do you separate off topic a little bit? Yeah. Where do you separate codependence from I love you so much? All I want to be, I just want to be with you. I think codependency is feeling like you need to be responsible for somebody else's emotions. Whereas a really loving relationship is giving each other the space to exist, but also meeting in a respectful way. So in terms of religious views, how do you not be codependent with God? It's saying, I'm not going to blame Hashem for the emotions that I have. I'm just going to embrace whatever I have right now and realize that already is, you know, being divine. Even if I'm angry right now, even if I'm unhappy and we'll see, you know, like you could set an intention not to be angry, set an intention not to be depressed. But that doesn't mean that you in this moment, no matter what you're feeling, is not perfect. Right. And, and I think it's codependent to try to say, Hashem, how dare you have done this to me? Because you're not taking responsibility for just being present with what is. And a lot of spouses will try to do it. You made me feel this way. And that's codependency. But really, if you take responsibility for it, no, I'm feeling this way right now. Let me come from the, the point of strength and, and esteem and assertiveness in a healthy way of where I'm at right now and share this with my partner. So if I approach Hashem, I say, Hashem, I'm feeling really down today. How do I approach you in purity, Hashem? How do I become closer to you, Hashem? That's not codependent. That's fully loving, I think. That makes sense? Great. And what, sorry, what were you saying right before, Mick? You're good. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Okay, perfect. So now this is going to continue to hit on that. Do you know the Pasuk? In all of your ways, you should know him. And he will straighten your path. I believe it's from Mishle. I might be wrong. So that means that you could just know God in anything and everything you're doing. And no matter what your path is, no matter how crooked it is, no matter where you find yourself, he will straighten that path for you. Even if everything outside is crooked, just by you being at peace and in a relationship with God makes it all a straight path. So God could be experienced through all types of normal daily human experience. That is through eating, through sexual relations, through experiencing natural phenomena, through social relationships, and so forth. So I think this is so important because we like to put down a lot of what we do as humans and say, oh, it's not important. Oh, I'm just brushing my teeth. Oh, no, I'm just walking down the block. But it's even the smallest little moments. Even going to the bathroom is something that we elevate with Asheri Asad. And it's something that you can do. And we're going to see later on, the Kabbalists take it to an even further point where they say, going to the bathroom, I'm eating food and I'm excreting the, the, the waste. And my body is, is absorbing like the, the sparks of divine energy from that. And I'm, I'm getting rid of what I don't need, like the kili pot, like the external shells that are not necessary. So it's really a, an amazing way of living, when it, and it forces you almost into a mindfulness. Because when everything is so cosmically and divinely significant, it's saying, look, Hashem wants you to be present right now. 
other school, mystical intimacy, even further. Keeping the mitzvot was either a prerequisite for or a means of attaining divakut. So, of course, Hasidut plays on this, and the Hasidic masters connected the word mitzvah to the Aramaic word savta, which means to bind, to bind two things together. In other words, by means of observing the mitzvot, a person bound himself to God, like a tzivit. Yeah. Is that in an an emotional way? I think in in so many ways. Uh, Emotional is definitely one way. Certainly emotional, but we also do it practically with tefillin. Aywa. Literally binding ourselves with Hashem. Physically. Physically. And I betrothed you to me forever. That's the pasuk we say as we put on the tefillin. And I think emotionally, like you're saying, psychologically, mentally, spiritually, there's there's so many ways of binding yourself to God. Um, and, and that's what, what about 100% emotion is a huge one. Um, and that's what, what Devikut is about. It's about saying, Hashem, I'm going to experience you in what I'm doing right now. Uh, no matter what that thing is, I'm going to invite you into this space. I think that, I think that does a... That's a good explanation, and um, I'm trying to reconcile it, or maybe understand it, intertwined with the idea of a mitzvah as a precept, as, mm. a, as a as a clause and an agreement, so to speak. If Beautiful. Look, if, we look at it, if we look at the Torah as a covenant, mm-hmm. and we are the recipients, we are not the recipients. Sorry, we're um, we're the other end of the contract. And we have to keep to our agreement. Exactly. So when you say bind, that's what I, when you say bind, I think of the covenant. I actually think of the agreement. Love it. But what I was like, trouble. what I was troubled with was how do we, how do we explain, sorry, the covenant can be very, understood very cerebrally. How do we understand mm-hmm. it in a more visceral way? And more that's exactly, I, I love that you asked that because, the exact problem that you just mentioned is exactly what Kabbalah is trying to, to fix, where Judaism so easily becomes cerebral. It so easily becomes pedantic and scholarly to the degree where it's something we talk about. And, and just like the same way I enjoy calculus, I could go and enjoy reading a daf of Gemara. And, you know, I'm not judging anybody who does that. I think it's great if you're smart. And your intellect brings you closer to God. That's great. But a lot of people don't feel good just from living in their brain. A lot of people don't feel good living so cerebrally. And they almost demand an emotional connection with God. So that's, you know, the reason why Kabbalah is like a love story is because it it portrays these sefirot as having a relationship and it portrays Ben Israel being in a relationship with God. And it's all about that love story. It's all about that intimacy that the mitzvot bring about. Does that make sense? So I think it's up to you as an individual and it's up to the nation as a whole to see the covenant, not as something that is, you know, forced upon us or cerebral. Exactly. Not just purely legalistic. It's something that is really holy. And it's something that is inviting us in a beautiful sense. So like there's a pasuk from uh, Hosea where he says, You're not going to call me anymore your Baal or like your owner. Hashem says to him, and he says, now you'll call me your husband. And, and that's the relationship Hashem wants from us and that we want from Hashem is to be in a real relationship. So that's on a national scale, but on an individual scale. I think it's much easier to control because you control your own mindset when you're approaching God. So when you approach God, you say, am I just going to check off boxes when I'm doing these mitzvot? Or do I take each mitzvah as sacrosanct, as something that is like, it's this unique moment for me to be present with God. And there's nothing more powerful than that. And one moment in a day could transform a whole week or even a whole day, right? Or a whole month even, sorry. Uh, so, you know, some people have have moments of clarity and, and moments of deep emotion during one Amidah that they remember that whole month and they say, you know, I, I felt so connected and it carried me through. I've had that myself. Um, 
So that's what we mean by being bound to God. Beautiful, beautiful uh, points there. The next school. Like that shows you that yeah. the test has an effect, right? That Amida had an effect on the whole duration of the month. So how do we take that into like how do we connect the past, the present, and the present? Right? Mm-hmm. Ah, so that so yeah, the, the 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 past, the present, and the future are all connected, of course. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it has to be standalone. That doesn't mean that it has to be. I mean, okay, so from one perspective it is, and from one perspective it isn't. Where once you clear your mind of the past and the future, you can be just this moment. And that's a very unique thing to be able to get there. But before you get there, it's also true that, yeah, this moment is affected by the past. And it implies the whole past. But it's almost like this moment connects with all those things and becomes everything and everything is nothing. Because once you have everything, there are no more things. There's no things. Does that make sense? Everything and nothing is almost like the same kind of concept. Because once you have everything, there's no more things. It's infinity. There's no more separate things. It's just everything. And it's no things. It's just nothing. So this is a very, it's, it's difficult concept to explain or to think about, but it's more of a, a concept to... A little mathematical. It's a little bit mathematical, but it's more... It's not supposed to be that. It's supposed to be something to experience. Yeah. But you could use the words to try to just give you the faith that, that that's what it really is. Right. So, yes, this moment implies all other moments, but it's also just this moment. Does that make sense? Moment yes. Exactly. We'll, we'll talk after class. <laughs> See me after class. Theosophical theology Kabbalah. We'll, we'll uh, mention a few more things before we end. Let's see, whenever the rabbi uh, finishes. So Theosophical theology Kabbalah means knowing things. This is really an audacious school, but I think it's so beautiful if you maintain humility as you approach it. So it's the idea of knowing certain things about divine realms. And feeling even the ability to influence those divine realms. Imagine how unbelievable that is. Where you as a human being, we definitely do that. We definitely do that. And and it's an experience to have. And that's all I could say about it. You know, for some people, it might not resonate. For other people, I think it would. So it it really is. Yeah. Like where, in a way, uh, the Eastern philosophies might diverge from the Kabbalah. Yeah. I think for sure. And I, I think some of the Eastern philosophies do have certain things within it, but like pure Zen right. tends to avoid this stuff. Maybe Hinduism is more into that is this stuff. connected to like, are you, affecting, are you affecting the world positively if you're in a cave learning? Uh, I, think, I think you're affecting your world positively. That's, and, and that could be valuable in and of itself when you don't even know where it's going to be, where it's going to take you just from your own personal experience. Ah, so this is something. Uh, I, who am I to say no? Yeah. So let's see exactly. What, so what is it saying? That I think for sure it's saying that that. I think no. I think even Eastern philosophy could could be open to that. It just depends. So let let's see what it says first. Restoring the flow between the male and female forces in a sephirotic realm. So the sephirot have certain male and female elements to them. And by you learning Torah or by you being fully present or by you talking to God or doing a mitzvah, you could restore the proper flow between the male and female elements of these sephirot. Rabbi Isaiah Horowitz wrote in his book called Shenelu Hotaberit, it is known that all the commandments are ways of repairing tikune et to repair the Shekhinah. You're literally fixing a certain part of God's presence in this world just by performing certain mitzvot. The Zohar has Eliyahu and Navi say to Moshe, and observing every commandment, your effort was to unite the Holy One with his Shekhinah. Eliyahu and Navi says to Moshe, ah, I get it now. Moshe, I understand why you gave us all these mitzvot. You were seeking 
to unite Hashem with His Shekhinah. The Ramban said the mitzvot are the midot, right? The seven lower sefirot are the mitzvot and are the midot. That's another word for the seven lower sefirot. Ya'ani, the observance of a commandment is the light of life of a sefirah. A person who acts below maintains its power. So by keeping, hey, what's doing? By keeping the mitzvot of the lower realms, right? By keeping these uh, midot, as they say, you're able to give a certain power, according to this school of Kabbalah, to the, the sefirot. So this is a, a way of doing mitzvot that I guarantee you will give you kavana. And I guarantee you will give you, an ex- if you really get into it enough, will give you that experience of what I'm doing right now is cosmically significant. And there's no taking away from that, from a person's experience of that. And you could always have naysayers. You could always have people, but they didn't experience what you experienced. So if you're praying the Amidah and you get this feeling of like, this was cosmically necessary for me to have prayed these past 10 minutes, or even just putting out the feeling, that is an unbelievable experience to have. You could, you'll maintain your humility through it and you'll see it as a way of turning more towards God. But at the end of the day, it's an experience to have. Yeah, I yeah. think also something you said, great, that relates is it's, it's, it cosmically sounds almost outward. Yeah. In your world. Exactly. It made a cosmic difference, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, because the sepidol, fixing them, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. But for sure, in the way that you relate to the world, yeah. uh, you can elevate it. through. through and, and this is the paradox is like, where do I draw the distinction between the, uh, the outside world and everyone else's consciousness yeah. and my consciousness? I can't even prove that you have a consciousness. All I really know about is my consciousness and the world outside. So for me, that is the world, is my mind and is the way that I'm praying and is the way that I am affecting the Sifirot from my perspective. And this could also be scary. Like if I'm schizophrenic, I think that the world and for me, the entire world is a scary, terrible, hellish place. But if I'm a person that's in touch with this stuff, I'm creating a world that is so beautiful and a love story and mystically significant, right? And, and it makes all the difference. And you were talking about uh, Eastern stuff before. I think you're right. I think certain schools of Eastern philosophy tend to shy away from this because the fear is that you could say to yourself, wow, look at me. I'm a big macher. I'm the guy yeah. turning and you, but you think you are Yodke Vavke. And it's like, no, 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 you're not Yodke Vavke. You're, if you yeah, want to take that, you. <laughs> exactly. If you want to take that perspective, there, there is no you really. But there are mystical experiences that you can have where you do merge with whatever the creator is. And you start to feel like whatever is going on, all of it is doing me. Everything is just doing what it's doing, and that's doing me. But from the other opposite perspective, I am doing all of it. Once you start seeing internal and external as connected in a certain way, you could have that dualistic perspective where on the one hand, I'm doing all of it, like we were saying earlier, I'm beating my heart, I'm secreting the whatever out of my, my pineal gland, I'm lifting my arm, I'm making this entire room be here. But at the same time, where am I really? It's just all just happening of itself. It's creating the room. It's beating my heart. It's moving my hand. And it's just different ways of saying it that are both true. Does that make sense? You could either see all of it as happening to you or you as doing all of it. And both are true at the same time. That's the best way I could put it from a more Eastern perspective. Um. The next school, drawing down the divine influx, uh, keeping the mitzvot, stimulating grace to flow to our world from the upper world. So we're not going to go too far into this. Um, but this is a, a very, very deep thing. Uh, meaning that something that's going on down here can affect something that's going on up there. So this is less about knowing 
uh, you know, how to affect the upper realms and more about how do I bring down the grace from the upper realms to the lower realm. So we'll pause here with that. Uh, but I want to leave it open to any questions that you guys have. Oh, but we're ready for our beat. All right. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Guys, Hazak Baruch. Really fantastic. I'm so glad you guys came. I, I was uh, so sad in the beginning that, that we only had a, just me and Mickey, but uh, it was really beautiful. Mickey, thank you for coming on time. You're the best.